Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the fourth international workshop on acute leukemias, which was held in Nice, France. This session focuses on novel treatment strategies in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, where you will hear from experts Robin Foa, Rob Peters, Nicholas Short, and Nicolas Boissel. So here we are in Nice, South of France, for the fourth international workshop on acute leukemias. And we are discussing here with three colleagues, I'll present them in a second. It's a session three, novel treatment strategies in uh, ALL. So a couple of, well, no, one person was from a distance and not here. We have Nicolas Short, Nicolas Boissel, uh, Rob Peters, and myself. I'm Robin Foer. So where do we start from? Shall we follow the program? Because Nicolas Short spoke a bit about uh, ponatinib uh, combination strategies in ALL. So do you want to sum up briefly what your views are on this? And we discuss it, obviously. Yeah, sure. So. Um, you know, we have a number of different TKI options for Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL now. Um, and so our approach at MD Anderson, and I know a lot of others are also looking at this, is the role of panatinib. We know that T315I mutations are a common mechanism of resistance that occur with first or second generation TKIs. And so that kind of is the rationale for the use of panatinib, uh, in, particularly in the frontline setting. Um, so there have been study, multiple studies looking at panatinib-based combinations. So we've done a study of hyper-CVAD plus panatinib, which showed very high rates of complete molecular response, a five-year survival rate of around 75%, with most patients not needing transplant in first remission, or at least not undergoing transplant and still having very good outcomes. Other groups have look at, looked at steroids plus panatinib, uh, and also other approaches of chemo plus panatinib. There's the Ponelfil study, which looked at chemotherapy plus panatinib followed by transplant, and that led to very impressive long-term survival, three-year survival rate around 96% with a chemo, panatinib, and um, uh, transplant regimen. I think now we're moving towards chemotherapy-free regimens. So now we have, as you know, so- I would, I would agree. Yes, so <laughs> as you know, so so we'll say TKI generally plus blinitumumab. So I know that at you and, and, and your group have done uh, disatinib blinitumumab with, with excellent results. We've looked at um, uh, panatinib plus blinitumumab. Uh, the idea that panatinib is, probably, is a more potent TKI and hopefully will overcome any potential t 3 and 5 i mutations that could emerge. Um, we've seen very good outcomes with those so far. Very high response rate, 80, uh, complete molecular response rate of about 85%. The follow-up is still relatively short, but with the two-year two-year uh, the two-year survival looks to be 93%. And importantly, we haven't been transplanting patients on this uh, protocol. So I think we're very excited about this chemotherapy-free regimen as a potential way to overcome the need for transplant uh, uh, in patients with pH-positive ALL. Do you have an age limit to that study? I can't remember it. Off there's, no, there's no, no age limit, so we treated up to 80 years. So. I think it mentioned we should. Is there a lower age limit? 18. 18. 18. 18. So initially we were yeah. concerned. Initially yeah. we, we were very concerned about eliminating the chemotherapy entirely from patients uh, uh, you know, for, from these patients uh, who are younger. Uh, so initially we, we did some chemotherapy-based combinations with them, even with the blinitumab, and then now it's full chemotherapy-free, 18 and older, because that's, I treated old patients only, so. Do you want to add something on this point? Uh, yes, because Nicholas, I think that uh, the transplant has, has become a very important question. So what we have decided in the, in the GRAL group is uh, 
to combine low-dose chemotherapy, blinatumab and ponatimib, and to ask for the indication of, of allogenic stem cell transplants and to randomize the, the transplant in patients with uh, uh, good MRD response. And um, because we think that probably uh, uh, IgTCR uh, MRD will add some information when compared to BCR able, maybe we will use we will use IgTCR MRD to to assess the response to the patient and patient with with uh, with excellent response with no detectable MRD after blinatumab and ponatinib will be randomized to receive allogenic stem cell transplant or not. So I hope we will have a, an answer to this question. We hope so too from <laughs> our studies. But I think one point that we should make to whoever follow this uh, online, I think it's an important point because, I mean, you're younger, but in the old days, the Philadelphia Post-ALL was the worst condition you can get, maybe not only in hematology. It was a real disaster. Now we, this morning it was said this is a favorable condition. I mean, yeah. I'm old enough to remember somebody else uh, that this was exactly the opposite. So this, I think, is a message that we should convey very clearly. Paradoxically, this has become a favorable subgroup. But we have to diagnose it quickly. That goes back to what we discussed this morning. I mean, we need the laboratory, and this is a key point for the management of ALL, all ALLs, not only Philadelphia. Laboratories, here you have to pick up the BCR Abelson within a few days, a week maybe, if you have the steroid preface. Then you start the TKI without going to do which or whatever. This is, I mean, if we want to consider chemo-free, you need to make a good diagnosis. We need the MRD. You've been discussing the MRD. The MRD is a key point. And you can't cure a patient if the patient has become MRD negative. So I think this is a real revolution. I asked you the age, because now we can cure 70-year-old, 80-year-olds, try to cure at least, treat them adequately, even if they're eight, we, our oldest is 89, two 89 patients, and they responded very well. This is unthinkable. But you have to diagnose. And, and I think it also has consequences for the children with ALL, so below the age of 18. Because now we, we only transplant 5 to 10% of, of these cases based upon the MRD. Uh, but we, we said for 40 years that the adult ALLs had to learn from us, but I think now it's the other way around. It's not only replacing the transplant, it's also the re replacing the intensive chemotherapy we use at the moment, and that should be changed in the, in the coming years. I it's think. a very important point. I mean, I started as a pediatrician, so my yeah, yeah. years back, I find it amazing, despite the data, you still give intensive chemo in kids. I know they put up with it much better than adults, but there can be side effects on the long run. So that's something that, anyway, it'll change, I'm sure. Any other comments on this part here? If not, we move, no, I think we should definitely move on. The second in this, Go to Nicholas. We have two Nicholases here. Uh, progress and treatment in the young adolescent, young adults. I mean, that has been another key point, I think, in management of AL. One of the changes, if we talk about the changes in ALL, one has been the manner of young patients. Because in the old days, again, to do a bit of history, what happened if you were, the adolescent was a question, if you were 17, were you treated in a pediatric? department or an adult. So when the pediatric got a pediatric protocol, and if you were an adult, you got an adult. And that made the difference, because it all started by retrospectively analyzing young adolescent treated in a pediatric world, and it came back that if you're in a pediatric, it's better. And do you want to make a comment on that, but that's what you covered here. In, uh, yes, so that's an important question, and this story started about 20 years ago. and. Uh, by comparing the outcome of patient age 15 to 20 years old treated either according or in pediatric or in adult uh, trials. And uh, at that time, 
uh, it was obvious that uh, just the, the, the treatment or the, the care pathway or journey of the patients were, were a, a, a very important prognostic factor. And um, so many groups have extended uh, either pediatric uh, approaches or pediatric-like approaches. And I think that the question that is still pending say, uh, is how old, uh, uh, until, until which age we can extend this, this kind of practice. And I think it's, of course, uh, really protocol dependent and intensity dependent because uh, so in our experience, but we tried to extend up to 60 years old. We found that in patients older than 45, clearly older than 55, it was not reasonable to, to have this asparaginase and delayed intensification and so on. But we know from other studies that uh, a very intensive study um, that uh, if you try to apply this protocol in patients older than 30, it, it's also not reasonable. So for each protocol or each schedule, then you may have uh, upper age limit to apply these trials. And um, what has become obvious also because of short-term and long-term toxicity is that probably we've reached like a, a ceiling in terms of dose intensity in these AYA patients. And so that now if we want to move forward, we will have to combine either with, with small molecules. We know that in this uh, AYA population, we have a high amount of patients with uh, pH-like ALL, so uh, activating mutation for signaling pathway. Some of them may be targeted, and there are some prospective trials with tyrosine kinase inhibitors or JAK inhibitors for those with CLF2 rearrangement and, and JAKSAT pathway activation. But of course, the more reasonable or the the, is, is to implement the, the immunotherapy that has been approved in relapsed refractory setting, uh, antibody drug conjugate, inotuzumab, or, 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 or bispecific antibodies, by blinatumumab um, frontline, according to emergency uh, response for all patients, or for inotuzumab, for instance, in patients that are not eligible for allogenic stem cell transplant. We know that there, there is a question about uh, uh, hepatic uh, safety in this patient that receive inotuzumab. So there are a lot of trials now that are addressing this question of inotuzumab in patients with good MRD response that are not eligible to allogenic stem cell transplant and that will be randomized to receive inotuzumab either in consolidation or delayed intensification. You know, this set, it's interesting again because as you said, these data go back about 20 years. And now it's all changed the approach because I mean the young adults are treated very intensively, but even the less young are treated more intensively than we used to do 20 years ago. And this is based on these studies, so I think yeah. it's had a broader consequence than only let's say from up to 30, which is obvious. But even later we're treating patients more. And again, the laboratory plays now a role because you're mentioning abnormalities, etc. Thanks. Okay, and the. Th Third one was on an old drug. An old drug, yeah. Asparaginase, which yeah. is still possibly the most effective single drug in ALL, maybe, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think <laughs> together with dexamethasone, these are the oh, that's, most, another yeah. new, that's another new one. Yeah, that's a, yeah, extremely new. <laughs> has, it, has it been approved? Uh, I, I don't think Recently. so. Recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, uh, yeah, my, my talk was mainly on asparaginase and had basically two important uh, messages. The first one was if, if you truncate the asparaginase, you do not give the plant dose of asparaginase that children with ALL then have a worse outcome. So you should uh, re 
well, try to replace as much as possible uh, if you have to stop uh, the, the first line drug, which is pecasperginase. And the second message was to use drug, uh, therapeutic drug monitoring for asperginase because you can pick up those patients that inactivate the drug in a silent way, so without clinical signs, inactivate the drug. And then you can pick it up with uh, drug monitoring and replace the pecasperginase by urinase. And the second um, uh, thing is where you can use therapeutic drug monitoring for is to uh, lower the dose that we need because we see that many, many patients have far too high drug levels, uh, which is not necessary. And well, there are more, it's more and more evidence that is related to, to some si important side effects. So this may also be helpful for the adult population. Yeah. Uh, but the drug is still very much used in the Philadelphia negative, obviously. We're not talking about the Philadelphia yeah, positive, yeah, but it's still yeah, in, yeah. at the background yeah, of the Yeah, and the Philadelphia positive population in children is only 4%. The 96 other are uh, Philadelphia negative. So, small so, kids, yeah. even less. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and of course, with. But we, we randomize, uh, for instance, inotuzumab, we randomize blinatumumab in the, in the frontline uh, uh, treatment. So let's say in four or five years from now, we will know better whether we can use this drug to replace intensive components of the chemotherapy. I hope so, yeah. Any other comments you would like to make? Uh, because then maybe we can conclude. Or is oh, something? I would just say if I could be a little contrarian, as you uh, may know, that we don't use asparaginase, so yes, we don't uh, use uh, really. I, I didn't want to say it. Yeah, well, let's say, well, you know, uh, we do I mean, in the T cell ALL. I mean, I think maybe it may work a little bit better in T cell ALL. Certainly, it's a very it's a very effective drug, without a doubt. Um, I think ultimately the question is, and it's, it's, it's very important that all of these tweaks are being made in, in terms of optimizing the dose of asparaginase and who can receive it. I think the big question going forward is going to be, will we need the asparaginase and the toxicities as potentially associated with it as we move to integrate the inotuzumab and blinatumab? So we're using, you know, uh, non-asparaginase, you know, hyper-CVAD backbone, but introducing the inotuzumab and the blinatumab into that. And I think ultimately the question is, will we be able to get similar or even better outcomes to asparaginase-based regimens? I, I agree that, you know, there's some data out there retrospectively suggesting that if, if all other things being equal, that the asparaginase-based regimen may be superior to the, you know, a, a, an adult, quote-unquote, adult regimen. But if we introduce all these other agents, do we need the asparaginase? And I think that's an open question. And, and that doesn't account only for asparaginase. It also accounts for the anthracyclines. Mm -hmm. Oh, do we need for all of the, those drugs? Yeah, for exactly. For uh, so these are even more How intensive a chemotherapy do we need yeah. if we use all of these other agents, I think, so. I think this is an important point, and we can probably almost finish with this because I think uh, for whoever will listen to us, I think this is a very important point that for the Philadelphia Protocol, many times we spoke today of chemo-free strategies. Maybe not for all, but for many, or chemo and even transplant-free probably or possibly for many. This is a total revolution. This will probably extend to the Philadelphia negative, B lineage at least, because we have drugs there. Nobody mentioned anti-CD20, but I mean, we have anti-CD20 drugs, obviously. We have other antibodies. So I think this is going to be a key point to reduce chemotherapy. Definitely. And the elderly. I mean, we forgot. We didn't forget. We mentioned it in the room. I mean, it's, median it's, age is increasing. Yeah, it's true. But uh, the 
the advantage of the Philadelphia Postal VLL, you have a targeted agent. Absolutely. You have the, uh, the TKIs, which is not the case. And, and I like very much your approach. Actually, last week I visited with, with our Queen MD Anderson to learn uh, from the chemo-free regimen. But for the Philadelphia negative, you still use a lot of uh, hyper-CFAT together with Blina and Eno, which is, which is, um, which is, is very good. Uh, but we have to realize that as long as we don't have a targetable genetic lesion, uh, we are not sure whether you can only go with Blina and Eno for that. that, I, would, that is, I would just add quickly and, and to, Dr. to Dr. Fo's point, and that's, a great, and that's a very important question. Our, our plan is to slowly move down the age that we're using. So right now we're kind of doing these low-dose chemotherapy, yeah. inotuzumab, yeah. blintumab in the older patients, but can we push that, and right now it's kind of 60 and older, what about 50 and, 50 and older, 40 and older, reduce, as we see very reduce, good. Reduce chemo. That's yeah, 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 yeah. And, and move it up in the age range, because obviously everybody is apprehensive about going ahead and yeah. just starting treating a 20-year-old 20, 20 yeah. patient with, you know, very low-intensity chemotherapy and, and inoblina, but maybe in the future, maybe that's what we will do. I mean, yeah. we'll have to see. And, and, and one other big difference is, at the moment, we have a five-year survival in childhood age level, 94%. It's hard to improve. And, and well, no, well, well I, I personally, I believe we can reduce the chemotherapy a lot. The problem is, do the, will the parents accept this, take the risk? You know, one of it's the, a, yeah, I problem. don't know if you heard at the end, uh, Dr. Faradi from the uh, again asked, do you think we can stop TKI in the Philadelphia post Yeah. I mean, we'd all love that. The answer is no, no because so far, so. who would ever stop? It isn't acute leukemia, it's not a CML. Yeah. CML, yeah. you can yeah. retreat, there's no problem. Acute leukemia, maybe not, but the hope one day will be if you have, I don't know, two, three, four, five years, molecular negativity, if your molecular testing is becoming more sophisticated yeah. as it is, maybe this can be as an end point. The final point I would like to make, because I think we have to stop, it's at all this, but it's something I'm always very close to me because we have events in many parts of the world, is the fact that all this is laboratory driven. Yeah. yeah. How doable is it? I mean, I'm very concerned on that. I mean, all the sessions been MRD oriented, the session, apart from diagnostic. Addition genetic abnormalities, this is not doable. So I think one of the points is that I think this should be made available, maybe to cooperative groups. Yeah. It hasn't been done in every center, but regional to offer the best uh, diagnostic workup and follow-up, which translate into curves that have changed dramatically over the years, not only in children, but now in adults too. So this is a major point. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.